Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges and a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. Unlock a whole new world of travel with the Capital One Venture X Card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details. Instead of costly private tutoring, IXL Learning can give your child the help they need at an affordable price. IXL is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Crime Junkie listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Crime Junkie. Visit IXL.com slash Crime Junkie to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And this is part two of the story of Felicia Barnes. If you haven't listened to part one, first of all, you're probably surprised to hear Britt. <laughs> Hello. But go back and listen to part one because otherwise you're going to be truly lost. Honestly, I might still be lost having been in part one. Yeah, you, you might need a refresher. So for those of you who have already listened and just need that quick recap, 16-year-old Felicia went missing in December of 2010, only to be found deceased and floating in the river a few months later in April. And this is all going down in Baltimore. Now, at the time, all eyes are on her half-sister's ex-boyfriend, this guy named Michael Johnson. But despite some sketchy coincidences, some weird behavior, they can't pin anything on him. But in June of 2011, the public learned that the FBI had been investigating child sexual abuse material and sexual exploitation of a minor, which they say was in connection to Felicia's death. And although this completely comes out of the blue, it seems to get the ball rolling towards finally bringing Felicia's alleged killer to trial. So when the news of the investigation into the abuse and the exploitation hits the public, a lot of people 
have a lot of questions, understandably so. Like, who do they think was abusing her? And how did they find the abuse materials? Did anyone know about it? I have all the same questions. Right. Now, they don't come right out and say much of anything at first. But what people do know is that the feds want access to Facebook and email accounts belonging to Felicia and a handful of other people, including her sister Dina, including Michael, who again is Dina's ex, two of Michael's brothers, and one of Michael's cousins. And according to Fox 45 News, that's because a cell phone video exists which shows Felicia, quote, with other relatives in Baltimore, partially clothed and appearing intoxicated, end quote. Relatives? Whose relatives, though? Like Michael's, Dina's? They don't say, and the affidavits that explain all of this are sealed. But whatever it is, it's still not enough for an arrest. How is it not enough for an arrest? I mean, she's 16. Even if the age of consent is 16, she is still a minor. No, you're right. So the age of consent is actually 16 in Maryland. But as long as she's a minor, any explicit photos or videos taken of her are still considered child sexual abuse material, even if she gave consent for those to be taken. So you're right. This seems like grounds for an arrest, not necessarily for her murder, her kidnapping, whatever. Just for these materials, right? Apparently not. And so that fall, investigators try a new tactic. The Harford County state's attorney brings the case to a grand jury. And one by one, they call in Michael's relatives to testify. While at the same time, police get a wiretap on Michael's phone. Basically, the hope is by doing this grand jury, they're hoping they're going to scare him and scare him into talking while they're recording him. Mm -hmm. And it actually works to some extent. It gets him talking. And as detectives listen in, Michael raises questions about the strength of the case to one of his brothers. And even though he sounds almost philosophical at times, he is worried when investigators come to his house to get a DNA sample. And actually, here is a clip from one of the actual wiretaps. So my thing is, what are they testing against? Have they taken my DNA? What are you testing against? Mm-hmm. DNA is found on her way. And the fucking part about it is I can't sit there and tell you that it wouldn't be there. Be where? Underneath the fingernails and all that shit. Uh-huh. Because of the situation that was going on. Because me, her, and Dina was play fighting and shit. And, and I don't know who it was, but somebody scratched the fuck out of me. And we was all sitting there playing. They pretty much whipped my ass. But it wasn't on no real shit, nothing like that. But somebody scratched. You know how you play fighting shit like that. Oh, when was it? That was, it was not too long before all this shit happened. Everybody was like, well, wouldn't that be washed away? Seeing as though she probably took a shower, I'm like, well, if that's the case, wouldn't it be washed away if you sat in the water? So evidently, they must have got a DNA sample off of her. Even that was just a scare tactic like that a fucking tool. I still don't know what they're trying to pull. I ain't tripping, yo. It is what it is, nigga. What you mean, it is what it is? That's a long However, you look at it, it's a long time. Yeah, well, I ain't complaining. It's life. Some niggas get dealt the motherfucking speeds. Some niggas get dealt the club, nigga. <laughs> I can't say I had a fucked up one. I had a pretty good one. So far, I did a lot of shit that I wanted to do. There's only one more thing that I want to do. What? Brazil, nigga. But the one thing I would tell you niggas to do, take the fruit. <laughs> Uh, it ain't over yet, nigga. And not yet. So this still wouldn't be over. 
It's gonna be my fight. I ain't going out without fighting. That's right. You shouldn't. <laughs> we got that recording from John Butler, who used to be with the Baltimore State's Attorney's Office. First, he was a law clerk, then a prosecutor. And John is actually going to be dropping a deep dive podcast on this case called A Confidence in the Round. We actually have a link to John's website so you can stay up to date on anything pertaining to the release of that series. It's right in the show notes. Now, other parts of that call are hard to understand because at times, Michael and his brother jump into topics that they've obviously discussed before. And they talk in shorthand that sounds like, honestly, code. Like at one point, they discuss a storage bin, which they call a tote, because I think at some point the state had one in the grand jury room. But let me ask you something about that. The way he was carrying it, you can always tell if something is in there with it's heavy. One hand. One hand is dragging that bitch along. No, not dragging. One one hand lift holding it. Basically, so the, it was sitting in a vertical position, like it wasn't really nothing in it. Well, actually, it was on a, uh, I'll say, a 90-degree angle facing down, like it wasn't nothing in it. But, I mean, if anything was in a tote, that matter. So it seemed like some bullshit. Probably so. What does that mean in relation to Felicia? I don't know what it means, but that bin is definitely on his mind, right? Like, he's talking about it for some reason. And in another call, Michael tells his current girlfriend at the time that he's considering fleeing the country, maybe to Brazil, because the U.S. won't be able to extradite him. Although, I don't think he's actually right about that, because the U.S. and Brazil do have an extradition treaty. Okay. And, like, he goes on, he's like, I don't want to leave— Because, like, at that point, he had that newborn baby with this girl, but he's, like, saying he doesn't have any options left. Uh, Okay, hear me out. It's great that we're getting all this information or interactions from him, but I feel like it's not clearing anything up for me. Like, what does all of that even mean? Why does he need to flee? I I have so many questions. And I don't have any answers. To your point, like, it sounds damning, but as damning as it sounds— That's all it is. He doesn't admit to anything. Right. And because of that, I mean, it's as flimsy to the grand jury as it is to us, and they decide not to indict, which could just be because they don't think Felicia was killed in Harford County, so it could be a technicality. Mm-hmm. It could be because they don't think there's enough evidence against Michael. It could be a myriad of things. We don't know. Those things don't get released. But after this, police get a strange new lead to investigate thanks to some commentary on the People's Champion blog. It turns out that back in January of 2011, a young woman who is friends with one of Michael's brothers tweeted, quote, It's trapped at the dam. Don't pull the lever. End quote. Excuse me, what's trapped at the dam? Yeah, that's what they want to find out. When police confront the woman, she tells them that she's not sure what the tweet means. She doesn't remember. But she's adamant that it's not about Felicia, who, I'll remind everyone from episode one, was found in a dam. And she even says she's willing to testify if need be, that she doesn't remember, doesn't know what it's about, whatever. Now, after this, things go kind of silent until the one-year anniversary of Felicia's disappearance. That's when Michael's lawyer shed some light on the child sexual abuse material warrants. Well, sort of. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. Take it from someone who has made the mistake. 
And I should have freaking known better because in our very first house, we got a sectional from Ashley's store. And it was amazing. So beautiful, withstood a lot. I mean, Chuck is absolutely invited on all the furniture, but you couldn't tell. And that couch, after years of service, then supported our lazy butts during COVID when we binge watch show after show after show. Not even so much as an indent in my favorite cushion. Long story short, when we moved houses, I was like, oh, I'll get a new couch. It costs more money. It must be better. No, I hate it. It looks like we've had it for a zillion years. Meanwhile, the Ashley couch is still thriving at my brother's place. And as if their stuff wasn't quality before, the new high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is somehow even better. It's designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Listen, I have corrected all of my mistakes, and we now have their new high-performance durable furniture. I got it in this beautiful shade of blue. I got some chairs. Love them, love them, love them. So whether you're hosting and toasting or just enjoying furry friends, you can relax knowing you have the durability and convenience of Ashley Store's newest assortment of high-performance furniture. Shop the life-resistant, high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Spring is about fresh starts. That could mean starting a new venture or switching things up on your website. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Use Squarespace to design a website, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to time all in one place. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, Apple Pay, and in certain countries, give customers the chance to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and Clearpay. Selling content on your website? Add a paywall to sell memberships or courses or sell downloadable files. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash crimejunkie to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. The lawyer says there are photos of Michael and Felicia streaking with other people, running around naked inside and outside of Dina's apartment. But the photos weren't taken during Felicia's winter 2010 trip. It was taken when she had visited a few months before that. And it's still not clear how they relate to the murder investigation at all. But the lawyer also tells reporter Justin Fenton that police have nothing on Michael, that they've been wasting their time going after him. But clearly investigators and prosecutors feel a whole nother way. Because on Wednesday, April 25th of 2012, Michael Johnson is indicted on first-degree murder in the death of Felicia Simone Barnes. Whoa, I mean, that seemed to come out of nowhere, though. It did. But Felicia's family doesn't care. They're just understandably thrilled that something's actually happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're waiting, what is it, two years at this point for Mm -hmm. an arrest? But just like the investigation to get here, nothing about this trial is going to be straightforward, starting from the moment Michael is arrested. In his jail booking photo, his face is all banged up. Like, he's got a black eye, a swollen eye. His lawyer says that police roughed him up while they took him into custody. Police, on the other hand, say Michael tried to run, so a deputy U.S. marshal tackled him and his face hit the ground. He said, he said, I don't know. Right. 
Also, Peter Herman reports that it's unusual for someone in Maryland to be charged by a grand jury indictment first. Typically, I guess that comes after the initial arrest. So they're saying like things were done kind of backwards. Uh-huh. And a one charge indictment is also pretty odd because I mean, we've seen this. Prosecutors usually try and like tack on other charges. Like stack them up. Yeah, right. manslaughter, conspiracy as a safety net, right? I mean, could they just be so confident in whatever evidence that they have that they feel like they don't need those like extra charges, though? I don't know what's going on in their heads, but Michael's lawyer kind of has this theory on why they're doing this. Basically, he thinks they're rushing to charge him because as if this case wasn't complicated enough. The lead detective, Daniel Nicholson, who you'll remember as Daniel Nicholson the fourth, he had just got suspended at this time. And that's the day before Michael was arrested. Okay. In the ultimate twist of irony, Daniel's own teenage daughter had gone missing a few days ago. And there were allegations that he went rogue to find her, that he was, like, using his badge while off duty to get into someone's home, that he then assaulted them. And they're trying to get ahead of that investigation. Exactly. Again, at the time that they're going to charge Michael. Daniel hadn't been formally— Wait, this is just the day before, right? Right. He had, yeah. He hadn't been formally charged yet. So Michael's lawyer thinks that basically they wanted a conviction in Felicia's case before then going and prosecuting Daniel. Otherwise, you've got, like, your lead detective could potentially be a it's convicted— It's like, questionable yeah. judgment, character, et cetera, et cetera. All that to say, was his daughter ever found? Yeah, so no, thankfully she was found safe and sound— And the police union defends Daniel's actions, saying that he didn't do anything wrong. He was just a dogged investigator, a dogged dad who loves his family. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like being in that situation. And I know I'd do anything for my kids, but assault is still assault. Did this person even have Daniel's daughter? Well, WBAL-TV's Jane Miller reported that it was an apartment where he believed his daughter's boyfriend was staying I don't know. It doesn't sound like they found her there. I don't know what the ins and outs of that were. To your point, if someone took Joe, like, gloves are off. There's no rules anymore. There's no So part of me gets it. Anyway, Michael ends up pleading not guilty. And since his previous comments about fleeing the country make him a flight risk, he is denied bail while everyone starts to get ready for trial. And as the trial looms closer, John Butler, who, remember, he's the guy who gave us the recordings. He's a law clerk assigned to the case at the time. He notices something strange. He notices that Michael used a different phone number on his Easy Pass application than the one that police were previously aware of. It turns out that he had gotten a new number around June of 2010. So the state subpoenas those older records. And surprise, There are even more texts with Felicia. More than 1,300 between the two numbers. Okay, the hundreds of texts before was side-eye. This certainly doesn't look any better. I also don't know, like, why they didn't see this on Felicia's records, but... Could just be just a random other number. I don't know. I know, but you'd think they'd want, like, 1,300 messages. Like, who's this? I don't know. I, I... Either way, they find it now. Regardless, do they have any physical evidence? Well, no, that's the thing. This entire case that they're making against Michael is circumstantial. There is no physical evidence. They don't have the storage bin that they believe was used to move her, which, by the way, they they don't even know. That's just their theory. Right. And they can't even say conclusively how she died. Asphyxiation could be suffocation, strangulation, even drowning. Mm -hmm. Now, even though they collected Michael's DNA and he was 
clearly fearful it would have been found maybe under her fingernails based on that recorded call, they don't actually have that. They don't have DNA on her to compare it to. Not to mention, Michael's cell tower records don't put him anywhere near the area where she was found. And the state admits that they don't know how he would have gotten her body there. Although, they have a theory. They think that he stashed her in the well house where that cadaver dog alerted. Or potentially stashed her in Patapsco State Park until he was then able to dump her in the river. So did the autopsy ever conclude how long she was in the river, though? So not that I can tell. And remember, this was all in the middle of winter in the Northeast. So I would imagine that the temperature of the water would actually impact their ability to make any kind of like, especially when you talk about she's been gone for months and months. Mm -hmm. You're not narrowing down a couple hour window. It's like weeks or hopefully days, but likely more like weeks. With frigid water, too. Like, just guess and you'd probably be close. But the prosecutors do have something that, although it doesn't link Michael to Felicia's murder, it does make Michael look real bad. In December 2012, they file a notice that they intend to play that whole cell phone video in court, the one that I mentioned earlier. But this time, they release a bit more information about it. It's 16 minutes long, and apparently it shows Dina and Michael, along with Felicia and Michael's younger brother, quote, intoxicated, and engaging in sexual relations, end quote. This news comes out on the second anniversary of Felicia's disappearance, and it makes her family just sick. At this point, Janice wants Dina to go to prison more than anyone. I mean, she thinks she deserves a longer sentence than even Michael for putting Felicia in those situations in the first place. And she is just furious with everyone involved. And understandably so. It's really hard for me to understand how this all went down. Now, Michael's trial begins in late January of 2013. Prosecutors lay out their case. They say that Dina made terrible mistakes while in charge of her teenage sister, allowing her to drink and party with adults, including Michael. And the night that that video was recorded, that would have been June 13th, 2010, they say, they allege, that that was a turning point in Michael and Felicia's relationship, which ultimately led to her death. Now, the video involves kissing and, quote-unquote, naked touching, Dina with Michael, Felicia with his younger brother. But the state says that even though Michael was touching Dina, he's actually looking at Felicia. And from there, they believe he became obsessed with her and he began an inappropriate relationship with her. They even bring Dina up and she has to answer questions about the video while it plays on TV monitors facing away from court spectators. Now, when she's explaining this, she says that the four of them, along with another of Michael's brothers, were just drinking and left a party at the apartment to go streaking on a dare from Michael. And she tells the jury that she doesn't know why she let her teenage sister participate in the whole thing. She just wasn't thinking. Yeah, no shit. But just wasn't thinking isn't an excuse for that kind of behavior. That's something your 14-year-old son would say. I was going to say, I barely let that slide for him on, like— forgetting to switch his laundry from the washer to the dryer. It's not a good excuse for anything, let alone this. This, I mean, she was an adult in this situation. And it gets worse. She testifies that in the video, Felicia is seen grabbing Michael's penis, that they were playing this so-called game that Dina and Michael made up, which they call joinking, where they grab each other's privates. I'm sorry. They thought it was just okay to play this game with minors? I mean, I don't know why they thought this was okay, but they obviously did. 
Because according to Joy Lapola's reporting for Fox 45, at one point in the video, Michael is actually seen touching Felicia's breasts. Dina says that after they were back in their apartment that night, she saw Michael reach for Felicia like he was going to touch her vagina. And Felicia laughed and kind of like pushed his hand away. And then Dina went and confronted him. He denied the accusation and she considered calling her father, but then didn't. Like she was basically afraid. She said that she wouldn't get to see Felicia anymore, which like bing, bing, bing. Yeah. Right call. I certainly wouldn't send my daughter back to her. But she tells the jury basically, like, at that point, her and Michael's relationship was already rocky, like, when they're making this video. In fact, she said it probably had been over for, like, a year by then, but she said that that night was, like, the nail in the coffin for their relationship. Other siblings of Felicia take the stand as well, like Kelly and Brian. They tell the jury about the first night after Felicia went missing, how they kind of gathered at Dina's place watching the door, hoping she was just going to show up. They say Michael joined them eventually, and... They make note that his eyes were, quote-unquote, bloodshot. And they say that when he showed up, he, like, sat on the couch not saying much to anyone. And he was nervous about the implications of being the last person to see Felicia. And he also didn't help out later with search efforts, which, to be fair, like, I don't know if you remember from episode one, but, like, I remember Felicia's dad saying, was like, like, you are all on the list. Yeah. I'm and looking out for you and police will want to talk to you. And especially yeah. Michael, he's like, you're a suspect, you're a suspect, but like you're the last person to see her. So like, it's not his own head. Like people are instilling the spirit mm-hmm. in him as well. Now, the other person who takes the stand is the medical examiner who says that Felicia's body was only moderately decomposed, which could fit the theory that she was in a container when she was dumped into the water because it might have helped preserve her. And again, we're talking middle of winter in Baltimore. The cold weather would have slow decomposition as well. But just note that they never actually found a container with her. It was just her body. Uh Now, there's one more thing that, I mean, sends shockwaves through the whole courtroom. And that's when prosecutors tell the jury about a surprise witness, a 36-year-old man named James McRae, who claims that he saw Felicia's body after she was killed. Pride yourself on finding the best deals and savings? Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and more. Your favorite stores like Macy's, Urban Outfitters, and Sephora pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. That's you. Cashback is deposited directly into your PayPal account, or Rakuten can send you a check. You can even maximize your savings by stacking cashback on top of other deals, like store sales and coupons. Shop for everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. I love using Rakuten because I truly don't even have to think about it. The app is just there, hanging out and giving me cash back on so many of my normal everyday online purchases. All I have to do is shop. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Your cashback really adds up. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. 
If you've been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, Quince is for you. Build up a lineup of timeless pieces that keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. You all know I love my cashmere pieces from Quince and Ashley can't get enough of their bodysuits, but I have two words, washable silk. I can't get enough washable silk dresses, skirts, and blouses from Quince, and I used to like save silk for special occasions, but since these are washable silk, I'm wearing silk like every day. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash crime junkie for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash crime junkie to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash crime junkie. James claims that Michael showed him Felicia's body and asked for his advice on what to do with it. Wait, you're going to have to back up. I have a million questions. How long have they known about this guy? Where'd he come from? Maybe let's start with who is he? This seems so random. This also is like feeling like cereal all over again. (laughs) Like, is it not? Totally. I can't, again, I got to get out of Baltimore. So the reason we haven't heard about him before was, I guess... This guy only came forward after the arrest, like in June of 2012. James is what the state calls a petty thief, and he says that he spoke up because he was overcome by guilt while reading his Bible in jail. Okay. He says he's a drifter from New York who's currently locked up for theft at a nearby county, and he's testified in a couple of high-profile trials before. That feels like a big red flag to Mm -hmm. me. I mean, he could be making this story up for personal gain. Well, James actually has a response for that. He says that he was a reluctant witness every single time. Okay. And that in this case, he has nothing to gain because he's getting out of jail soon anyway. According to Justin Fenton's reporting, James testifies that he and Michael were never, like, good friends, but they did know each other, and he had even met Felicia as well. He claims that Michael called him one day, just out of the blue, tells him that he needs help with something serious— So he gave James directions to the apartment, and when he arrived, Michael showed him Felicia's body wrapped up in a sheet in the bedroom. He says that Michael told him Felicia had been, like, giving him mixed signals and that he had raped her and then choked her when she wouldn't stop crying afterwards. Now, James says that he wouldn't help Michael move her body, but he did offer some advice. He told him to turn off his phone— turn off Felicia's phone, too, because the GPS would track their locations. And then he suggested throwing her in the water instead of burying her so any evidence on her body would be destroyed. And do they have any evidence placing James at the apartment, like phone records? I haven't seen anything about James's phone records, but prosecutors do have Michael's phone records, remember? And the thing is, is even though this is their witness, they have to admit that they can't find any calls to any number that could be associated with James. That being said, they say that James knows things that weren't public knowledge, like that Michael's nickname for Felicia was Little Sis. Plus, even though Michael did not turn his phone off while he was driving around that day, on the very next day, someone used a computer, which was later seized from Michael's brother's house, to search whether a phone's location can be traced when the phone is off. Okay, but we know his phone was off that day because he said it died. 
Could he have stashed it with Felicia's body then and then made it back to wherever he was when it turned back on? I don't think so, because remember, he bought that tote that they think she was buried in at Walmart. We know his phone was on then. Right, when he was, like, running errands or whatever that afternoon. Unless he hit her somewhere else while his phone was off, bought the tote, then turned off his phone later, put her in the tote. I don't know how that timeline would make (sighs) sense, and— to be fair, I don't know how any of these timelines make sense. So. They don't. That's a problem. I told you I could do an episode on these timeline discrepancies. This is such a difficult case to put together. Again, even that like shady search, like can they, you know, track me if my phone's off? Like you can't actually connect that to Michael. So again, all fishy, all circumstantial. And of course, the defense pokes all the holes in James's story. They basically dismiss him as a jailhouse snitch who, quote, can't tell Michael Johnson from Michael Jordan. <laughs> His attorneys tell the jury that if this dude is the state's star witness, their case has to be in trouble. For one thing, James began his testimony by telling the jury that his name is actually James Lee, not James McRae. Great way to start off, guy. Yeah, although he seems to kind of use both or go back and forth. He also testified that Dina's apartment was on the second floor as he's telling his story. Uh, We know that hers is like the basement Mm -hmm. apartment. Mm Mm-hmm. He claimed this all happened before Christmas. But it didn't. We know Felicia went missing three days after Christmas. Got it, got it. Then there's the storage container, or the tote, as everyone calls it. Prosecutors have one of those in the courtroom. They say that it's identical to the one that Michael used, and they want a witness to actually climb into it to demonstrate that a person Felicia's size could fit in there. But the judge won't allow it because it's actually not the container that was the container. Well, the one that was allegedly used is right. just similar blue plastic 35-gallon container from Dina's place. And as the defense points out, there is no hard evidence that a plastic bin is involved in the crime at all, let alone a 35-gallon bin specifically. Like it, it that is weird to me they have this theory and they're going to It's like not just a bin, it is yeah, a very similar bin to this exact size, color, yeah. everything. Well, again, to me, there's no proof at all any bin was used. Right. Then you're saying, okay, there's this specific bin. Not, not only was a bin used. It's this it's, it's this one. this kind of bin. But there is a lot of talk of bins by other people, but they're all conflicting descriptions of it. Like, take Dina's statement. Hours after Felicia's disappearance, Dina tells police that a large blue storage bin was missing from her closet. Okay. But according to Kate Amara of WBAL-TV, Dina then changed her mind later that same night after she saw a bin in Michael's car filled with clothes, which was supposedly hers. So I think she's saying the one missing is in his car. Okay. Then a few days later, she tells police the container in Michael's car was actually smaller than the one that disappeared from her apartment. So that one's now still missing. Meanwhile, police have surveillance video of Michael buying a storage bin during his trip to Walmart that day at around 4 Mm p.m., but the bin that he got at Walmart was 22 gallons. Okay. (laughs) I know, it's a lot. Let me make sure I have this container's bin situation sorted out. The bin from Dina's apartment, which she says is a 35-gallon bin, is still missing. Mm -hmm. And the one she saw in Michael's car, which she thought was her bin but is not her bin, was actually the new, smaller 22-gallon bin that he bought at Walmart that day. I think... Question mark? Again, this is so confusing. (laughs) Even the reporters in the courtroom are like, what the hell is going on? Which is probably never a good thing for a prosecutor, right? Right. If you can't even follow it, that's, that's bad news. 
But there's even more conflicting stuff because remember our friend Elvis, that neighbor? Mm-hmm. Well, he tells the jury that he saw Michael struggling to move the bin in the morning. But again, according to prosecutors' theory, they believe that Felicia was killed in the early afternoon in that small window of time when his phone was off after she stopped using her devices. Right, like around 1. Now, here's the thing. So John Butler, who was the law clerk at the time, told us that a blue storage container lid was found in the same debris-filled area near the dam where Felicia's body was found in. The problem is that area is super big. It's not super clear how far away it was from her. For some reason, it was never collected, which seems wild to me since they had this whole theory about a bin. Since we're all talking about bins, the Non-stop. bin lid. Yeah, and it's not like they didn't know. Like, they've, they'd been building this theory for, like, months. They're looking for surveillance footage, but they didn't collect it. Okay. So the state isn't allowed to introduce photos of it into evidence. So apparently they did take a photo of it, but because they didn't collect it as evidence, you can't bring it into trial, which I totally understand. But then why take a photo of it? I'm, okay, you know what? That I don't understand. Keep going. That I don't understand. <laughs> Now, to top it all off, the Emmy testifies that nothing in Felicia's autopsy suggests her body was ever folded into a plastic storage Mm. container. In fact, she says the only firm conclusion she can come to is that Felicia died from lack of oxygen. She found no signs of drowning or choking on food, but also no signs of strangulation. There were no injuries at all all as far as she could tell and the death was essentially ruled a homicide by default just because of the suspicious circumstances surrounding you know her going missing the way her body was found right but to be clear you're telling me that they have no physical evidence to determine if Felicia was even murdered pretty much i mean look we can't completely discount all the circumstantial evidence because there's a lot of it and michael's behavior is sketchy as hell mm-hmm. but even some of that sketchy behavior is debunked by the defense They argue that even though Michael and Felicia texted a lot, none of the messages said anything inappropriate. Plus, it's not that he didn't want to help look for Felicia. He had been told to stay away by either police or her family or both. So after the state rests its case, Michael's lawyers ask a judge for an acquittal, which is actually a totally common legal strategy. What's uncommon is the judge's response. He tells prosecutors that he's greatly concerned about the flaws in their case. Everyone in the courtroom is on the edge of their seats, wondering if the judge is going to grant the defense's request and just let Michael go. But he doesn't. He says that it should be up to a jury to decide. And Michael's lawyers only call one witness when it's their turn, a co-worker of his who says that he didn't find it odd that Michael called in sick that day. According to Kate Amara's reporting, apparently he skipped work like three or four times a month. I don't even know how this dude like held a job. (laughs) The defense was also supposed to call a surprise witness of their own, this man who supposedly saw Felicia like days after she was reported missing in another county. But they end up not calling him. I don't know why. But anyways, both sides wrap up their case and it's in the jury's hands. At the last minute... The jury is given the option to convict him of first-degree murder or second-degree murder. Going in, it was only first. Mm -hmm. So the tension is palpable as Felicia's and Michael's families wait for the verdict. And after two days of deliberating, the jury acquits him of first-degree murder but finds him guilty of second-degree murder. Now, Felicia's family is relieved. Like, it did look dicey for a while. And no, it's not as good as first degree. I think this is probably why they threw second degree on the table is... Like, just in case we need it. Well, like, they knew things were something. probably going kind of bad for yeah. them. 
so again, even though it's not perfect, even though it's not life in prison, he would still be in prison for up to 30 years. So they can rest easy knowing that the man convicted for her murder will be behind bars. That is, until Michael's lawyers file a motion for a new trial. And on Wednesday, March 20th, instead of sending him to prison, the judge grants it. He says that Michael didn't get a fair trial, and that's because prosecutors withheld key information about their star witness, James McRae, or James Lee, or whatever you want to call him. They raise a few different issues, basically saying that there are too many questions and concerns about this guy's credibility. But what's interesting is a juror tells Eleven News that it wasn't even James's testimony that swayed them towards the guilty verdict. It was actually the wiretapped phone calls. Because they say in them, not once did Michael claim he was innocent. He just talked about the consequences of getting convicted. Okay, then even without James's testimony, it sounds like the state could still have a really good case. Definitely. And Felicia's family is still hopeful. So they all pack back into the courtroom and a second trial starts on December 2nd, 2014. It's a beautiful moment. Your baby is taking their first steps. And then comes the not-so-beautiful moment. Blowout, diaper leakage, messy stuff where you really don't want it. Thankfully, this can all be avoided with a parent's must-have diaper, Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 have up to 100% leak-free fit. The blowout barrier in the back helps prevent leaks, no matter how active, on-the-go, or wild your baby moves. Josie pretty much skipped crawling, and the girl is now full-on running. And Pampers Cruisers 360 has saved me from some very massive, messy situations. So as soon as your baby starts standing or walking, get them in Pampers Cruisers 360. Because unlike other diapers, there are no diaper tabs. Instead, they have a stretchy 360-degree waistband that you can pull on so easily. Add Pampers Cruisers 360 and free and gentle wipes to your cart or pick them up at your local grocery store or big box store. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. This time, there's a different judge and different defense attorneys, but overall, the state's case is pretty much the same, with the notable exclusion of James McRae slash Lee on the witness list. They do introduce some new evidence, though. But it's just internet history stuff like Michael checking web sleuth message boards. So not exactly a smoking gun. Nothing in this case is. And it doesn't help this time around that neighbor Elvis's testimony is inconsistent because now he says that he saw Michael moving the storage bin anywhere from 10 a.m. to like 2 p.m. that day, which is a much bigger gap than he was giving before. Luckily for prosecutors, they still have those wiretapped phone calls on their side, although they have been ordered to redact parts before playing them for the jury. Here's where things get caught up, though. Whoever did the redacting missed a couple of different references. And on Friday, December 19th, as prosecutors are wrapping up, the jury hears Michael discussing things that should have been cut. Two times. How does that even happen? Like, this is the Murphy's Law of Trials for the prosecutors. But not for the defense. Michael's attorneys move for a mistrial and then just ask for an acquittal again because they're saying they think the state did this intentionally because their case was like mm. going down the drain. They were going to like cause this hiccup oh, that no. like, oh, now it's not fair. We have to get a do over. Mm -hmm. Now, the judge doesn't agree about that. He's like, I don't think this was on purpose, but I do understand that the jury can't unhear this. So he grants the mistrial. And as upsetting as this is to Felicia's family, 
it is somewhat of a relief because the case was going down the drain. Five of the jurors Justin Fenton interviews says that they would have voted to acquit Michael at that point. Maybe third time's a charm? No, it is the exact opposite. The third trial is derailed before it can even begin because in January 2015, the judge decides to reverse the mistrial and instead just outright acquit Michael of second-degree murder. You have got to be kidding me. Why? What? I've, I've literally never seen this happen. So they were able to do this because when the second trial ended, remember, there was still that defense motion on the table for an acquittal. So the judge should have made some decision on it, but just never did. And so now, because he doesn't think there's enough evidence to convict Michael, he decides it makes more sense to acquit him than have another trial. So the Baltimore state's attorney's office reindicts Michael on another second-degree murder charge. Wait, isn't that double jeopardy, though? You can't be tried for the same thing twice. The defense tries to argue that this is double jeopardy. But prosecutors say that after the judge declared a mistrial, he no longer had the authority to acquit Michael at all. Right, like that, like, ends that part. Dude, this is, like, unreal. So then the defense files a motion to dismiss the indictment. And to the prosecutor's dismay, the judge who just acquitted Michael is assigned to the case again. So not a big mystery what he thinks of it. And sure enough, he sides with the defense and dismisses the new charge. The state appeals and Maryland's highest court agrees with their argument. So it's time for round three. Like they are going to trial. I cannot imagine how horrible this is for Felicia's family. I I know. I'm like, it's a trial that never ends. I know. And like I laugh because this seems like something out of a movie. You laugh to not cry. Yeah. Like it's, we'll talk about this later, but like what's wild about this is like the system is working like it's supposed to. It's just. But does that mean it's working? Right. That's such a good way to say it. Now, this third trial doesn't start until March of 2018. So they have been dealing with this situation for years. Remember, his first trial was in 2012. Mm -hmm. She went missing in 2010. Eight years that this is just like never ending for them. Now, for Michael's third trial, he opts like he's done with the jury. Like he sees that judges understand his case, understand that there's not a whole lot of physical evidence. So he opts for just the judge to decide. He thinks he's going to have better luck. And the state knows that this is probably the last chance that they're going to get to get justice for Felicia. So new prosecutors are assigned. They even consider bringing James McRae back to testify, but ultimately they don't. And when the judge asks if they can point to anything to help prove their theory about Michael becoming obsessed with Felicia, I mean, he's like, literally, give me anything. Give me a text message. Give me something. The prosecution can't provide anything anything. Because in their mind, they think Michael was grooming her. So he was being super careful with his words. I also heard that there might have been some deleted texts that they were never able to recover. But again, who knows what those said. So Michael's lawyers argue that the state's theory makes no sense. They say it is more logical that she left the apartment on her own for innocent reasons and then met with trouble somewhere else. And it doesn't help. Again, this whole thing is happening years after Felicia's Mm -hmm. death. Witnesses don't remember things very well. The ones who do remember, it's not actually stuff that's helping the prosecution. Like one of the detectives who admits that it took four days to secure Dina's apartment and conduct any sort of foot search, he says that he never followed up on several tips that Felicia was seen in a particular area. And according to Kate Amara's reporting, he didn't even get out of his car during the initial canvas of the apartment complex. 
Just imagine what might have happened if they'd just taken her disappearance seriously from the start. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, maybe did their actual jobs. It's heartbreaking. It's appalling. It's there's almost not even words for how terrible it is. No. And and what comes out like to make all of this worse, I guess under Maryland law, state police are supposed to be notified if a child is missing for more than 24 hours. And that didn't even happen, which, you know, is meant to be kind of this other fail safe, like mm-hmm. if local police but just didn't happen. So because of all of this, on March 30th, Michael is acquitted for real this time. The judge says there are way too many unanswered questions to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the bar. And to say this is a crushing blow to Felicia's family is an understatement. Yeah. I mean, was anyone at least charged with anything related to that cell phone video? It's not much in comparison to murder, but it's something like someone should at least be held accountable for On video, right? Like, again, you want to talk about physical evidence. No, no one is ever charged. I assume there's a legal reason. I I don't know what the legal reason would be to not charge somebody for something that's illegal against a minor. (laughs) When you say it like that, it's very like, duh. Right? But I just know no one has, and I don't know (sighs) why. But what I will say, there was one good thing that came out of this whole horrible mess of a tragedy. And that's Felicia's Law, which promotes better coordination between law enforcement and community groups during those crucial first hours after children go missing. According to the Hartford Current, it's the first state law of this kind named after a non-white child. Russell believes police delays in Felicia's case helped a killer cover his tracks and ultimately go free. But I want to close this out with someone else's perspective. Actually, two people. Chantel and Felicia's little sister on her mom's side, Ayana. As painful as it was for them to share their sister's story with us, it was important to them because Felicia's narrative has largely been shaped by her dad's side of the family and to some degree, even Janice. Chantel and Ayana have never really had a voice in it. They don't share a last name with their sister, but they shared a home with her for years. And not including them is almost like erasing part of Felicia's history. They know that the only suspect police have ever had can no longer be held legally responsible for Felicia's murder. And they said it's a hopeless feeling, and they told us that they have a hard time finding good in the world. But if other people were involved, they could still face charges. Plus, no matter what happens in the criminal justice system, Chantel and Diana just want to know what really happened to their sister. And that made me think, again, about how do we measure justice? Like, we said this earlier, like, on one hand, you could say that justice was done in this case. Someone was charged. They went to trial mm-hmm. three times, in fact. There wasn't enough evidence to convict, so he went free. That is how the legal system is supposed to work in this country. But on the other hand, you have a young woman who had barely begun to live her life, who never got to accept the diploma that she worked so hard for or go off to college like she wanted to or have a career or marriage or children or anything It's likely no one will ever be held accountable for taking all of that away from her or for taking her away from the people who love her. And how do you call that justice? I'm interested to know if you guys would have done anything differently. We do this thing in the fan club called the Crime Junkie Jury. We'll be posting one of those. So if you're in the fan club, go take a look. And if you have thoughts on this case, find us on social or send us an email, crimejunkie at audiochuck.com.
As always, you guys can find all of our source material on the website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. We are actually off next week for the holiday. If you guys can't take the break, again, the fan club has quite literally hundreds of episodes and you get all the regular episodes ad-free. But before we go, we have one last list of fan shout-outs to celebrate our five-year anniversary, but I cannot believe we <laughs> made it. All right, so Liz from Hawaii, I love you. Ashlyn from Singapore. Megan K. from Nashville, Tennessee. Kelly K. from Phoenix, Arizona. Go Sun Devils. And Grace from Kansas. Thank you guys so much for tuning in over and over again, supporting us. I love you. And I want to say I love you to Tessa and Tanya from Springfield, Oregon. Natalie from Denver, Colorado. Jez in Sydney, Australia. So far. <laughs> Hannah M. from Hamilton, Georgia. Jen and James from Austin, Texas. And Heyman all the way from South Korea. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Happy holidays, yeah. you guys. We'll see you in the new year. <laughs> Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.